This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Friends, we're in June. It's Pride Month. It's Audiobook Appreciation Month. I am living my best life. So today I am getting to talk to another amazing and prolific narrator. Last week you heard us talk to Julia Whalen. This week you get to hear me talk to Robin Miles. Before we dive into our interview today, please make sure you rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Engage with us on social media at Pro Book Nerds. And of course, feel free to reach out with questions, suggestions, and recommendations. You can send those to our email address, professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And with that, let's get into my interview with Robin Miles. My guest today is a Golden Voice audiobook narrator, the 2014 Voice of Choice, and is a director, teacher, wisdom seeker, Mysore yoga gal, and mom who is squeezing every drop from the juice of life. It's Robin Miles. Hello. Hey there, Joe. How are you? Oh, I'm wonderful. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. Now, our listeners know it's audiobook month, and to be able to talk to you today, a person who has narrated so many audiobooks. Do you know how many audiobooks you've narrated? <laughs> I'm embarrassed to say I think I've lost count at about 450. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, just about. And I'm not even sure if I've counted the ones I've done under a pseudonym. That, I'm not even sure. <laughs> you know, that's okay. That That sounds right. When I searched your name through our OverDrive database, I think... Um, it, it hit something over 450 results. And right, that also wouldn't account for any of those pseudonyms or anything like that. So so just a few. Just a few. <laughs> yeah, I sit in a booth, I talk, and then we sell it, you know. <laughs> you know, just the simple things, right? You got it. You got it. Now, your most recent book, or at least kind of the one that brings us together today, is The Personal Librarian. Yes. Um, do you have a, a second to talk about The Personal Librarian, just a little bit of, of the book itself? I do. Um, the story, uh, and, and even before I start, I have to say, uh, The Personal Librarian um, was written by a writing team, uh, Marie Benedict and Victoria Christopher Murray. Mm -hmm. And um, I have this habit of, as I start a book, the first thing I do is I read the acknowledgements. I read the, like the last page, you know, in the thank yous, just because that's typically, or or there may be a section up front where it's, you know, uh, the, the preamble. Of course. And the way these two women came together to work on this book, I, I want to read that book too. <laughs> um, Without a doubt. Had, they had this scholarly interest um, and and incredible amounts of ability as writers, and they tag teamed it. Um, and what they came up with was amazing. Um, 
I love historical fiction. It's probably that and speculative fiction, I'd say, are like my two favorite genres. And the story of Belle de Costa Green is literally ripped out of the pages of history. And um, at, I mean, her father was the first uh, African-American to graduate from Harvard. Um, there is a lot of this. It seems to be in the collective consciousness right now, this going back and trying to fill in the blanks of history. This was yes. a whopper blank. It was a whopper blank. It and really so, was. <laughs> wow. Um, it was so exciting to find out how she navigated different things. Um, gender and race both being such an intersectional thing. Um, she became this incredible power broker um, here and in Europe. And yeah, I know she had JP Morgan's money behind her. So it's kind of hard to fail at that point. But, but getting to that, earning the trust, um, earning the way in and then following through you know, once you have the, the power, you still have to follow through on it, on all the acquisitions, on all the bidding, and the, all the negotiations. She right. was hella slick. Yes, she was. She was hella slick. Well, what's your process like? How do you get started with any um, book? Well, I will say I have a particular love, and I got lucky on this, particular love for this, this sort of era and period. Okay. I would say late and it's it was the time when my grandfather was alive and in his oh. day, my grandparents they they emigrated here from jamaica mm -hmm. um probably around eight in 1919 something like that okay um but he was born in 1860 i think that's right i just it seems have done a lot that crosses through uh the 19 teens uh, into maybe like the 1940s and then also back a little bit into like the 1860s, 70s. So this is a chunk that I keep traveling across. It's a piece of ground I've traveled across. Okay. Um, the first thing I do is sort of get an idea of where, where their speech might be grounded. And for Belle de Costa Green, between Washington, D.C., where she was born, and New York City, and in a highly, highly educated um, uh, realm. I think of, I go back to an earlier form of speech, anything that we have that was recorded, I, you know, is sort of in my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the vowels were plummier. And we had this intermediate A sound, you know, you had a father, you didn't have a father. Um, <laughs> uh, it, it's somewhere between ah and ah. It's okay. the same thing when you hear an Irish person say, my father, my father, mm -hmm. it's not my father, it's not my father, it's right in between. So that's one of the first things I do is I kind of slot back that in, because it's a sound that's been lost. We don't use it anymore. Same thing with the aw sound in automatic and automobile. And in New York, it's automatic and automobile, <laughs> you can really hear it. Absolutely. But we've taken a page out of like the Chicago Midwestern region. It's mm -hmm. sort of it came up and spread out across the country. Now you hear automobile and on and off automobile, right? <laughs> yeah. Law, law. I study, I go to law school instead you of law. Really, yeah, you really right? hear the Midwestern notes in those. <laughs> right. Well, that's kind of become the dominant sound. We, you hear it all over the East Coast now too. Um, and so I put that back in 
too, because it's from an earlier period in the US. Um, so that's kind of the first thing I do. There are seven points of good speech in uh, Edith Skinner's Speak With Distinction that theater artists have used for decades mm -hmm. in film and television. Um, and again, they hearken back to an earlier era. She wrote that book, I think, in the 70s, maybe the 80s, and she was okay. already a, an, an adult herself. And so that also represented a time period earlier than that as as a sort of a gold standard of quote unquote elevated speech it made so much sense for her to speak in that absolutely um, and it makes me think of like the transatlantic accent is kind of the the thing that comes to mind of everyone in early picture days kind of having a mm -hmm. that sort of put upon almost british but not quite not quite but <laughs> close close enough yeah um that's exactly kind of what i wanted to do is I knew that what she was going to sound like. I, I just, mm -hmm. I kind of, in, I think I intuited that. Um, sure. And then there's all this travel around the world. And I'm an accent coach. I mean, I coach in conservatories. I'm teaching the grad students at UCSD, the, their wow. British dialect now, their RP work. And so um, I've actually just done an entire roman romance in RP. And I really borrow from Judy Dench because it was written in the 70s, but it's situated oh. in this, it's set in the 1700s. And so the way that Judy Dench speaks, I thought would be more representative of the time. Um, so I, I, I borrow, I definitely borrow. Um, you know, if you want to do something like that, you're going to go to Judy Dench or Ian McKellen. Um, you know, you're not going to go to Cumberbatch as your example necessarily. <laughs> No, I, I don't think he's your best example, no. <laughs> so it's the same thing for this book. I wanted to make sure that there was a a sound and that it did not sound like now. It did not sound mm -hmm. contemporary. The other thing is 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 necessity. Here's this woman, um, this black woman passing as white. Mm -hmm. um, and if people find out, uh, she could lose everything and right. be harmed. And I've done other pieces, um, just in another one recently about, uh, and I'm, I'm going to have to find the title because it's slipping away from me, um, about a very, very famous madam in Manhattan during the same time and at her trial, who shows up in the courtroom? <gasps> Elle Costa Green. And they have a look at each other because they're both passing. So there so they, she is on the they're stand. They're sharing that moment of, hmm, I know. You know, <laughs> I, I think, am I right? I think I'm right. You know, they have this and it's, it's just comes and kind of goes, but um, that same, there were a lot of people mm -hmm. who were able to pass as white sure. and economically for opportunity, they decided they were going to seize the reins of that. And it must've been such a mind bender to, right. to walk around looking one way and having and knowing that anybody who knew that 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 you had something else in there would completely reject you for that thing, I, I cannot even imagine. The conversation around passing is is so fraught and still exists in so many uh, different aspects of our world right. today. But I mean, no matter what, it all still kind of maintains an element of danger. Um, right. And um, the the parallels to today, right now, mm -hmm. you know, straight passing or right. or. Uh, um, cis passing absolutely is an absolute parallel there's just 
And it's fraught with danger. You just mm-hmm. don't know who you're among, um, amongst. Right. Um, and what that would be. And it does come up actually in the other book, which I'm going to have to look the title up <laughs> now because I, I do so much that when I'm finished, I sort of go, oh, God, all right, what do I have the next? <laughs> what do I start prepping? What do I got to start reading now? Also, the, the, the sheer timing of the fact that both of these women and similar situations kind of showing up in your life, how, how often do you find that the books that, that you have the situation where you're going from one time period to another? I know you kind of tread these grounds a lot, but mm-hmm. do you find many situations like this where you know you feel like another character could just stroll into the courtroom <laughs> oh i feel like they should and they don't which is disappointing <laughs> we do but, all want that cinematic universe right <laughs> we do we do i don't you know um i do have overlaps and i always mm-hmm. makes me smile um it always makes me feel like i can create a richer performance because anything that's embedded in one book when it's located in like a place and a time. I just did um, The Moon and the Mars. It's Kia Corthren, who is a playwright, has written this massive, wonderful historical piece about oh. a little girl growing up in Manhattan in the Five Points neighborhood and, mm-hmm. and the environs, which is where not just black folks, um, like during the Civil War era, not just they lived there, but also all those Irish immigrants and German mm-hmm. immigrants. and. So we have all these kids running around with accents. Um, <laughs> but the and time the thought period, of that. yeah, the time period again gave birth to, and she's also a biracial kid because her dad is black and her father dies and her mom's Irish and the mom dies. And so she's raised by the two grandmothers. So she's oh, always wow. running back and forth between each set of relatives, which of course have very different um, speech patterns. Oh, that just blew my mind. And and you're doing all of those speech. I'm I'm connecting the dots of like, you're doing all of those speech patterns. Now, I've seen you effortlessly throw an accent in in our conversation here, but what is that like <laughs> to have to, do you um, plan all of your character lines kind of at once? Would you say, go through kind of one grandmother first and kind of record her portion of the story? And then after she's out of your head, switch over to like the Irish granny. So you have a... So you don't have to go between, or do you just put yourself through that and go? It's it's a serious chronological journey. It's okay. this page to the next page to the next page. Um, and so, and I do teach a fair amount. Um, mm-hmm. I've just, I'm just starting to teach audiobooks now at Pace. I've been teaching at USDSD, wow. uh, Learning Ally. I've done a, a training thing for them. But um, what I usually tell my students is that you take your acting technique, which is, you know, I'm going to play this action, right? I'm going to like an arrow, I'm going to shoot it like an arrow. And I'm, I've got this target and it's the other person and I'm acting with them. What you have to do is whatever it is that you want that you're going for, you have to release it completely. It's like letting the arrow go from the bow, let it all go. Don't hold on to any of the flockings. Don't, you know, don't try it. Let it go. And then pick up the bow and arrow of the other character. So you can do that cleanly without like, without two sets of, I want this and I want that. Just right. let it go, drop it. Or or the metaphor I use most often is it's like playing tennis with yourself, mm-hmm. which of course is impossible, but yes. it's like playing tennis <laughs> with yourself where you have your racket, 
right? And that's your swing is your the, the action that you're playing. And you swing it, and you hit the ball, then you drop the racket, you run to the other side, you pick up the other <laughs> racket, and you receive from yourself. Right. But if you try to bring the baggage from one side of the net with you to the other, that's what gets in your way. You just have to release really cleanly, let it all go. It's not in your body anymore. And now you're ready to pick up the next thing. Wow. No, that's a, that is such a fascinating thought that, right. Totally, it's totally mental. It's totally <laughs> mental. <laughs> I mean, yes, but it makes it work. <laughs> it, somehow it does. So that, that was really interesting for me because you've got these, these, these families and the Irish families come mm -hmm. over. They'd all be related. They'd be from most likely the same place. Um, so I'm not doing, I'm not doing like a lot of Northern Ireland, Southern, sure. you know, kind of regional things really. Um, but you do have people who are literally just coming over and those have been there for a decade. Um, and then you also have the black family members living in New York. And if they didn't grow up in the South, there's really no reason to give them a, um, any kind of typical black Southern dialect necessarily. Right. Um, what I've discovered in my travels, uh, and we don't have recordings from that era per se. So mm -hmm. is that when you look at, I think that's how they do this with Shakespeare too. When you look at poetry and the rhyming scheme in poetry, mm -hmm. you can tell how a word might have been spoken because it's used to rhyme with another word sure. and it might not be said that way anymore, but it used to be. So sometimes you get a little tip off there. Um, but there are so many, so many Northern Blacks and Midwestern Blacks that came up from the South, had kids, and then the kids grew up with their, you know, more of a Midwestern or Northeastern sensibility in their speech. And we all code switch. When you're with grandma and grandpa in Alabama, you learn how to speak in such a way that people there understand what it is you mean and you mm. know, don't get offended because you know where you know not to step um, absolutely but code switching i do that with my jamaican relatives all the time i have a, a youtube video that i use in my class of a guy from appalachia and you know you think of App appalachia um and the the locus of the sounds like very very far sort of back in the mouth into the throat um and you, you don't comb your hair, you comb your her. Right. <laughs> if you go for that real pure sound, um, the R's are really reflexed. I found this guy, I've given out an interview. <laughs> and he, um, again, I play stuff like that for my students. I'm like, remember, there are stereotypes and you don't like when it's done to you. So don't right. do it to your characters. Absolutely. Um, unless your character has a walk on, you know, like if you have a character who's got a walk on. <laughs> right. Um, if you are playing some... that one bit, it's time to steal the scene. Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> yeah. Um, my, my bit characters oftentimes will have um, less of a fully fleshed out character because there's not enough text for them to be fleshed out. Right. You're just you trying know? to sell the, that moment of, oh, sorry, I just walked in here and now I will take over this this stage yeah. and then I will walk off and you'll think of me for the rest of the night, but you will never see me again. <laughs> exactly. So um, rather than have them compete for center stage with the main mm -hmm. characters, if they func if they're just functionary, that's fine. I can have a functionary character and have just, you know, sort of straight up sound like that. It's Although it's so interesting. It is, it is hard for me not to, I don't like to do stereotypes, period. Mm -hmm. um, and 
I think that the the thing that sets apart uh, an archetype from a stereotype mm -hmm. is one is human, complicated, complex. They listen, and the thing that they say comes right from what they just received. Absolutely. Whereas a stereotype sort of has a set track that it's in, and right. you can you know you can blow on them as much as you want. They're not going to cool off or 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 fall out of the track. Right. They're going to hit the same points every time. It's that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's like McDonald's. It's kind of, yeah. It's like a McDonald's burger. The same. There you go. Yeah. So uh, I try, I try really hard not to do that. I also, I, I tend to cast my books diversely and I mean that truly all mm -hmm. across the board. I was working on NK Jemison's the fifth season, the trilogy. Yes. Won the Hugo award three years running. Beautiful, um, beautiful it, it series. Beautiful. Just, I want to go back and record it over and over and over and over again. You know, um, yeah. because the experience of being in it and walking through it as the performer yes. gave me so much in return. Ah. I cast that to reflect voices in the world. Mm -hmm. So, uh, two of the characters in one of the communities, they call them comms, you know, in the book. Um, the woman who's the calm leader is Nigerian. Mm -hmm. I give her a Nigerian accent. And her wife, I think it's her wife in the book, is Swedish. Or Nor Norwegian, really, because I, I don't necessarily do Swedish. I, Norwegian is one I'm more familiar with. Okay. Um, and so, and then there's like the smartest person in the book. The smartest scientist in mm -hmm. the book is this character who starts out as this she's a little girl when we see her, I guess it is. And then we don't see her. I, I, I don't want to talk about too much because I'll, I'll give a spoiler. I don't want to do it's that. It's okay. You can be, it's it's okay. You're so far so good. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you tell me. I, I don't want to like, okay. Um, but this character is trans. I had to learn it in the book because you don't, you don't know it at first. You find out later. Right. Um, but what I found so interesting about it was here was this wickedly smart science person. Mm -hmm. And I decided I was going to make them basically from like the hill country because yep. the stereotype is, oh, these people sound like this. They're dumb. And I went, nope, not doing that. Not having it. We can break it. Yeah. We can break them. They've been made. They can be broken. Mm -hmm. And I got the loveliest thank you note from a scientist from Appalachia who said, thank you for not doing that. Thank you for choosing that voice for her. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, um, my little my little diversity project there. <laughs> I, I think that's beautiful. Representation matters. I make that a big portion of when I'm teaching. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to show my kids like like TED Talks of brilliant people, brilliant people with local dialects. Mm -hmm. Um, so that they don't associate a local country type of dialect or rural dialect right. with stupidity. That's wrong. Absolutely wrong. It's so interesting, especially knowing that some of your teaching is done in New York, um, all of the different places where it, they are kind of hubs of people coming from elsewhere. Uh, yeah. That we, we're all kind of touched by this element of certain voices just mean different things. So I'm up uh, 
performing at the Huntington and two mm -hmm. Euripides, Euripides plays, the, the Iphigenia cycle. So we're, we're up there performing. We had really interesting experiences. Uh, the first one being the press comes while we're in rehearsal. We have, you know, we have our, our TV star that's, you know, in, in one of the slotted positions. Of course, they want to come. He's on a current thing. They want mm -hmm. to come and interview him and they want to interview the director. And the first question out of their mouth was, your cast is just people from all over, just so many different races. We had like Asian actors, I had a Hawaiian actor, we had black actors, um, right. light skin, dark skin, straight, queer, everything. Right. Um, how did, how does everybody get along? <laughs> and they act, they asked that question as if because we had this, these differences, we would never be, and never be able to like socialize. Oh, wow. And the, the people at the theater were just laughing because they said we were the closest knit cast they had had in years. <laughs> Sure. We went out. We went out to the bar together afterwards. There was a bar where you'd go in and and get board games. So we'd get backgammon and stuff, and we'd go after and talk and play games. Right. But we did we did so much together, so much together, and um. The, but the assumption was because we were from these different backgrounds, eh, it must be dicey. <laughs> no, not at all. Wow. Because we're all different, it must be real rough to work together. That's talk that about just, fascinating. Yeah, it was just the assumption. Now, truth be told, at night, now this was in, oh, good, I'm going to date myself now. This was in the <laughs> 90s, maybe okay. 90, uh, maybe 1990. Okay. Uh, close, close, I know it's close around there. Um, what we did have to do, and this is unfortunately a reflection of, of place and time, mm -hmm. um, when the black actors came out of the theater, the white actors had to hail a cab, open the door and let us get in. Because oh, they wow. didn't necessarily stop for us to pick us up in front of the theater. Sure. Um, they'd drive on by. So, but again, we were tight knit enough with the white actors to look, I got this. You know? like, don't you worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really something. Huh. Uh, yeah, it's so silly that people, people who haven't ever been involved in theater don't seem to understand that like, oh no, you're gonna meet a lot of different folks. and. Whether you love all of them or hate some of them, you're still a family for this run of time. Even if it's just yeah. that production, even if they're like that cousin that you sometimes don't get along with, you still have to make the show work. So yeah, well, it's, the whole is supposed to be greater than the sum of its parts. Absolutely. We're supposed to all be sacrificed for the sake of the thing we're all putting energy into, right. which could you think of a better lesson in democracy? Hmm. hmm. The whole is, is supposed to be greater than the sum of its, its parts. Ah, I, I wonder mm. if anyone's ever heard that. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> what do we know, right? <laughs> yeah, really. So it's been, yeah, it's been a quite, I love historical fiction. I love doing um, speculative fiction as well, just because I think both things, if you think about them under the guise of Afrofuturism, because I think that's sure. actually a good lens through which to process it. If you're doing historical fiction, you're looking backwards. Mm -hmm. You're looking at the steps that were taken that got us to where we are now. Um, and there's so much that you can learn from those steps. You can learn where a misstep happened. And now when you turn forward, you go, ah, I'm not stepping in that poo. I saw that when I was looking backwards, how that goes. Right. Um, so historical fiction for me gives us that opportunity to look back and see what went on. 
Um, I am very, very clear about things I don't want ever to happen again. I may not be able to stop them, but um, I know where I would like to put my efforts. Absolutely. And then when you think of speculative fiction, it's just a pivot on one's heels. Now I'm looking down a path of possibility that hasn't happened. But mm-hmm. if I shine the light down, let me see, it, it's like The Handmaid's Tale. Right. It's a giant, well, what if? Well, what if? And I look down that path and it becomes a cautionary tale. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you learn to spin that forward, that's what those, these writers are so good at doing. Absolutely. Um, I think it's Kim Stanley Robinson that wrote uh, 2140. Um, you know, it starts out in New York City and the streets are now underwater. People get around in boats because the polar ice caps have melted. And we're, you know, we are a sea level city. Um, he's one of the more brilliant people that went, okay, so if this happens, what are the, st- what are, what are the steps mankind would have to take? to continue to survive. Um, David Brin is, I think, a little bit like that too, very speculative. How would, how would this come about? And and if it did, what would it be like? You know, that first contact, uh, he wrote that 600 page book, Existence, which is just, wow. Um, all of N.K. Jemison's work um, and Nnedi Okorafor and, um, and many other people. And, and even, I mean, to a certain degree, the looking back and the looking forward, I just, there's so many people I don't even know who to speak of next, but that I that idea that they are inextricably linked, those who look back and those who look forward. There's this little juncture right in the middle where you can again like pivot on your heels back or forward. So I tend to get pretty fascinated by that. And by I'm sure you can figure I'm a Star Trek lover. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> and and Doctor Who, you know. I mean just that are notion. You ex- are you excited for the 60th? I'm so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have some catch-up watching to do. Um, Me too. I fell off the wagon for a bit there, you know, but I to know half, that they're the ones through. coming back. <laughs> yes. I was halfway through Capaldi's season. And then life just got a, so busy. I honestly think that's about where I had to pause as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That right. Yeah. Life, life happens. Sometimes you, I mean, I caught it much later as as he was as things were kind of happening on his end so i had to like pick up so much that at some point you burn yourself out a little bit yeah that's (laughs) kind of what happened because i went full bore on them and then when Mm -hmm. this when the the reboot of the reboot you know there was like like when the capaldi um as soon as it started again i went oh my goodness i gotta go back and watch it from the beginning again (laughs) and i i do think i got a little bit i I think Um, it's natural I will say, um, and I forgot to say this earlier, I don't mm-hmm. know if you're aware of the other book about Belle de Costa Green. No, but I'd uh, love I lo- to be aware of it. <laughs> I love it. There is another book called, okay. a- a- it's a nonfiction book, An Illuminated Life. It's Belle de Costa Green's Journey from Prejudice to P- Privilege. It's by Heidi Ardizione. I think it's Dizione. Um, Perfect. Or Dizione, I'm not sure. But... Um, she wrote the the um, the scholar text okay. on Belle de Costa Green, and I don't know how I got so lucky, but I got to do both. So oh, wow. a lot of the research from one kind of carried over to another, and then the other thing is I knew little bits and pieces about the second book, 
because I had read the first. And then I ended up getting, ah, okay, so this is the factual. All right, that's where they speculated. Okay, I was really <laughs> able to um, to look at her life in a kind of 360 degree way. That was so cool. That's, I mean, that's beautiful. Just being able to envelop yourself in in a person who is so prolific, both in the in the real and in the imagined. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I count myself lucky beyond words that I read and people pay me to do that. Just even if I were just reading and I'd tell you what the book was about, like in the mm-hmm. corner somewhere and you went and did something with it, that would be pretty cool. But the idea that I get to perform the books and really delve deeply into the characters is there's, there's nothing like this. And you, you know, what's happening now too is, um, Audiobook narrators are getting together mm-hmm. because we're starting to realize we're this funky group of people, right? Yeah. We're, these, we're basically like we're a bunch of actors <clears throat> who love to read um, and we don't have a desperate need to be looked at. Right. You know, um, so it's okay that we do this thing that's not in front of your eyes. Right. Um, and it also takes a specific skill set to do this and you know this is a big conversation right now because with technology um a lot of companies are trying to bring ai in to record books interesting and i've heard i've been listening to ai it's not Mm -hmm. it's not your ai that sounds like this anymore it's not that anymore it's it's gotten more sophisticated but when you listen to it i mean i can tell in 30 seconds whether it's human or not, even right. though the, the, it's very connected and very, the speech is really flowy. Um, the thing that AI can't do ever mm-hmm. is be is play actions. It can play emotions because I've heard AI. You can program them in, sure. You can program, oh, this is sadness, this is melancholy, this is anger, this is happiness, this is, you know, ebullience, whatever. Um, right. You can get general categories of, of emotions because the actor is going to record that and you'll have the little pocket of variety. But right. what happens when you have irony? What happens when someone says in the text, oh, I just love it when you do that. And mm-hmm. we know from the context that it's, Oh, I just love it when you do that. <laughs> so it plays exactly right. against the meaning. Absolutely. Or and... someone says, I just hate it when you do that. And it's a seduction scene. Ooh, I just mm-hmm. hate it when you do that. Obviously, it's not what the face value of it is. Exactly. And so. no matter how sophisticated they get, there's, there is a level of human experience that has to still exist. I greatly appreciate the changes and updates to AI um, for the benefit of people using screen readers for accessibility right. services. Like you said, it's, it's yeah. actors who, who want to put energy into it. And I, mm. I think uh, the danger of AI getting involved is that you'd, I, I have friends who they know I love audiobooks and they'll be like, but I don't want someone to read to me. I don't want it to just sound like it, it flat across the board. I'm like, no, you, you need to pick one up and listen to it because it's it's not just someone reading for you. It's someone reading to you. It's to an you. experience. Yeah. I mean, core thing, first lesson, intimacy, mm-hmm. that yes. this is an intimate act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, because we're Americans, we go right to intimate, naked, 
no, right, no, right, no. scared right away. Yeah. Right, we're not talking about the naked kind. We're talking about the I'm driving in my car. I'm sitting next to you. We're mm -hmm. close friends, and I'm telling you all about how my relationship broke up. You know, or right. or how much something hurt me when somebody died. Um, that kind of intimacy, heart intimacy, and head thought and feeling intimacy, not flesh. Although we do have erotica and that has a place too. Yes, there there are those types of intimate readings as well, but it, across the board, yeah, it's a it's a piece about vulnerability. It's uh, like you said, letting someone in. I uh, especially now, that's how I get my chores done. I love to think that I have chores. It's only me imposing them, but yeah. <laughs> it, you know, yeah. to know that I have to do the laundry. Well, now I have a friend who's going to go do the laundry with, with me. With you, yes, exactly. And if it feels otherwise it's uh, it's not as enjoyable it's it's not an experience i'm so glad that you said that um that is that's always my goal i feel like i'm always reaching out through the ether to touch yes and sometimes um i literally it's, it's literally physically my body because i sit in my little my little booth i have tiny little mm -hmm. booths <laughs> okay like my booth here in new york is about i about that much space past your it's shoulder two, two inches off each shoulder and, oh and i got a little pedestal chair so it's round because i can't even mm -hmm. fit a regular chair in there and i sit on it and i just lean back up against the wall or i lean to the side because huh. two inches and not I have, much more space <laughs> i have just enough length to go from my hip at the back with mm -hmm. my leg stuck out into the door jam because it's a it was a huh. closet that's Good all I've got. Yeah. I mean, but I think that also puts you into the the mental element mm -hmm. of once again that intimacy. You are record. It, it must feel like you're recording for a friend. It's going to be sent out yeah. to people who are going to mm -hmm. welcome you into their lives. I literally sit forward and I and I speak into the mic, but I always have like a little bit of a lean. It's the same mm -hmm. way I would sit if I were talking to you when we were in a bar and it was a little bit loud, but I wanted you to Whispering hear what into I was the saying. Ear. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to whisper necessarily because then I'll be too low in the mix. But 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 that idea that I want you to hear, but I don't want the whole room to hear me. Absolutely. That's my Irish pub um, uh, analogy. It's got to be an Irish pub because it's the best place in the world to go off to work. Right. And so you go to the mm -hmm. pub and you're sitting there at a little round table and you're in your chair and your friend comes in. Right. And you're sitting there. And you each have your boss ale. And the whole place is full of people doing the same thing. And you lean in. Right. And you have your private conversation over your boss ale. And I do love boss ale, that's true. Um, so <laughs> I always sort of describe it like that. I was like, look, you've done that. Right. Think about that, that intimate talking that you do and that feeling of letting down after work and being mm -hmm. able to connect with someone that you feel connection to. Right. And good narrators make that happen in the work. Yes. Absolutely. I just don't see AI quite getting there. I think you're going to get mood. You're going to get mood. You're not going to get nuance. Right. And, there and, will never be nuance with AI, but there will be you know. programming that'll allow some of it. Sure. But like yeah. I said, I prefer it in the accessibility sense compared to. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, there's a lot of things out there. If we could make everything available, that would be great. Um, but mm -hmm. I will say. A lot of people also argue that, oh, it's just going to be for nonfiction. But you know what? Nonfiction writers often have a thesis. They have right. a premise that they're putting into their work that they've researched 
for sometimes years just to write this book. And a lot of what they write dovetails back into flowing out from that thesis. And the human can recognize what that is and mm -hmm. then begin to, oh, this is a sentence that supports this connection to the thesis. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's not just narrative and storytelling. Um, and then again, all right, let me just, the words are barely <laughs> out of my mouth. Um, there's a lot of nonfiction that is narrativized. Mm-hmm. I've done a couple of books that were so amazing. One uh, about a young anthropologist. She's the granddaughter of one of the like hidden figures women at Bletchley Park yes. in England. Okay. And so she's like a cave drawing spelunking anthropologist. And she describes like going to Spain, getting off, seeing the valley, going down to the, where the rock caves are, sliding in and getting in and then coming into an inner chamber. And it's like right. listening to a politically correct Indiana Jones, you know, not a grave robber, right? Not there to like rob this, you know, a culture, but to look, to learn about what were early humans doing? Um, what did the cave paintings tell us? Completely <laughs> narrativized. It sounds almost like a, an Indiana Jones kind of a thing. And she went oh, all over I'm... the world doing this. So yeah, that's not one I'd put on AI. I, I also wouldn't put that on AI. I think of mm -hmm. um, uh, there are uh, there are so many genres that exist in mm -hmm. the world of books because we all have different tastes. And there are people who want nonfiction for enjoyment, just like those of us who want, uh, you know, YA fantasy for their enjoyment. Like, right. why should anyone be at, at a loss for their experience? It's mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it's an experience whether you're trying to learn from it. I shouldn't have to feel like I'm sitting in the most dull lecture I've ever been in right. just because I want nonfiction. I remember, I can't remember her name. I ran into a woman, it was one at one of the Audis years ago, the Audi Awards mm -hmm. or the, you know, the audiobook awards. She's from Australia and we, we were in a session during the day mm -hmm. before the awards. And she said she was doing a study in Australia on, um, learning patterns, how people learn. Some people mm -hmm. are visual learners. Some people are auditory learners and that's sure. their, they, they retain more. And so what she was also studying was how does one use the voice in such a way that facts that come across the page become more memorable. And I was like, I do this all the time. And I, I lost touch with this woman. I'm so disappointed, but so, you're doing nonfiction and if something is organized, like the writing, you know, like this essay structure is chronological. Mm -hmm. They're date anchors. I remember doing a piece on uh, Seabiscuit, the horse, um, right. which I now use in my teaching to teach this particular thing. We're talking about what was happening um, in 19 this and that, 1921, 1924, by 1928. And so you use the voice to land on um, a number and it could be the eight, it could be the 28 or 1928, depending on what mm -hmm. you're comparing, so that the ear actually catches the comparison of the two dates. And it's it's easier to feel the interval from the thing that happened just last. So if it's 1964 and, and information, 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 information. By 1968, I really feel that's a four-year gap because I heard four yeah. and now I hear eight. I mean, truly, when you did that, my brain immediately... <laughs> new to fall yeah. in line you, when you just said 1928 I went oh okay start listening here's the day <laughs> it, 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 I it call triggers them, something absolutely 
I use yeah. a higher tone in my voice and then I anchor them as they come up so that there's a sense of, it almost creates a visual in your head. Um, but that's, that's chronological. And you know, you can do that with process oriented things. Mm -hmm. if, if you were doing a cookbook, you could, you have to use your voice to detail the process or, you know, it, it, or it would be a disaster, I think. The same thing, are you just doing something, are you reading about a cause and effect, a causal relationship? Mm -hmm. So these things are the causes, and then you talk about their effect so that they feel like they're on different sides of something. Absolutely. And the ear remembers that this was sonically here, this was sonically there. So I think you absolutely can enhance um, recall by using the voice in a certain way. It's really a collective unconscious kind of thing. I've mm -hmm. noticed right now that we're in this, we're in this very interesting black and Irish beat. So Kia Corthran, playwright, just did The Moon and the Mars. She's a well-known playwright. And she wrote a really long book about this whole period and this relationship between these two communities. Um, there's another book, Dreaming in Irish. It's not historical fiction. It's sort of the now. But you've okay. got Dreaming in Irish is by Sarah Jane McKenna. Okay. Um, and truth be told, the um, Beth Mannion, the, the uh, writer, is a bestie of mine from fifth grade. She just wrote a book about an Irish family in New York, finding out about their roots and how they came over and what um, happened. And so she has to go back to Ireland to go again. It, that idea of roots and these two communities somehow paralleling um, because those two communities were also brought into conflict over and over again. And, you know, the draft riots in New York. Um, and yet their, their lived experiences, again, had so much... Um, similarity, you know, surviving through poverty. Um, the song, No Irish Need Apply, which mm -hmm. um, was a horrible thing to do to a group of people. It, wouldn't, it just wouldn't hire them. You could, we don't want your kind here. We right. African-Americans know what that's like. And so there's that, that parallelism and also Paradise, what's it called? Uh, Paradise Square, the musical. And that sort of, I think um, I've been looking at some footage online there's a whole focus on irish dance river dancing and and on african-american tap dancing and how uh, oh. how they're they they owe each other a little something that is really so fascinating i do feel like we're in a beat right now where mm -hmm. this seems to be something that's on our minds i'm not mm -hmm. quite sure why but um there are people writing about it but um, it feels like there's at least um, an edge of people trying to go back and look at look at that. Like, how did we how did, how did we, we fall out? Here? How did we right. get here? <laughs> um, really important to do. Um, and I'm also seeing it too in the queer community, which is making me very happy. Um, I went to a lecture at. A Riverside Church, actually, up here in uh, in Harlem. Uh, it's yeah. right. It's right near Columbia University, and there were two speakers: um, Joan Rader, uh, who's a showrunner in in Hollywood, and she speaks at churches. They're a Catholic family, and they have an mm -hmm. adopted daughter, and they've got a trans son, and they talk a lot at religious places about how it's really easy to love your trans kid. It really is. Mm -hmm. It's not Absolutely. hard. Um, and they're just like any other kid. They just want to be happy. They just want to play. They want to know who they are. Um, 
And so there was another speaker. I went to hear to hear Joan, but I also uh, I, I'm, I'm very remiss. I cannot remember the young person's name. They gave an amazing history of like. Mm -hmm. from like the 1500s to the present, sexual variations and orientations through the ages. And what happened when cultures that had that as mm -hmm. part of the culture came across colonizers and also religious groups would come to a place and want oh. to convert to Christianity. But to do that, the wise people, the wise ones of that culture were often the queer ones. They were gay, they were lesbian, they were trans, they were dual binary, non-binary. And because of that two-ness that they had, just almost like Native American two-spirits, because of that two-ness, they were considered having dual perspective, therefore wiser than the rest of us. And the only way a, the only way a priest could supplant that was to demonize and outlaw it using religion and they needed to steal the the thunder the fire the wisdom fire from those groups of people and so he goes through he's got names of people in history um and places and cultures and it's fascinating it scares the bejesus out of people um it's, it's scaring people crazy and they're doing um very reactionary things and i don't want i don't know what the answer to that is um, except having really, really big barbecues. Now I can support that. <laughs> I would love a really, really Even big barbecue. <laughs> barbecue and with lots of people. Mm -hmm. I always think it's sitting down to break bread with people is what creates community, ritual and food. Yeah, absolutely. I think nothing builds community better than the chance to, to share food so um, I'm going to look for your big barbecue coming up. That's what I'm going to do. I, now I guess I have to plan one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think my horoscope told me I needed to throw a party. Now you've told me I need to have a barbecue. Mm -hmm. I guess I'll combine them together. There you go. <laughs> Let me know if you want to come out to Hawaii. You'll come down my place and then we'll, we'll make you some barbecue. Oh, like I need a, a different reason to come to Hawaii. <laughs> Anytime. I'll, I'll, I'll find a ticket. Absolutely. <laughs> well, Robin, before I let you go, mm -hmm. because uh, I could talk to you all day, truly and honestly, mm -hmm. um, is there, where can the listeners find you online and anything coming up that you'd like to promote? Wow. The one thing I really want to promote, I can't talk about yet. No okay, that's fair. August, but um, we can talk about it. We can meet again in August and talk about it then. <laughs> I just um, I had a conversation with the person building my new website because I built my old website and it, it looks like I built my website. So, um, <laughs> but uh, I actually have a company called Voxpertise.com, which is V O X Pertise. Um, Love it. <clears throat> I make stuff up when there's not a word that's available. So. Um, that's where you'll generally find me. Um, and I'm, I'm hoping to start to put stuff up there, but you can find me, um, just Google my name. I'll come up wherever you can find me. Um, cause I'm pretty much, uh, I've done a lot of books. They're out there. Um, and I try, I try and advocate for other narrators a lot. I love to do these talks like we just did. Um, yes. just because I think that if, if you're a kid and you're growing up and you haven't encountered audiobooks yet, your life is going to be richer if I can if I can help open the door. If I can even make you curious about it, like okay, great. If you can get 
an audio book of that book that you need to read, that biography for your history class. Mm -hmm. I'm going to guess that you're just sit down with a highlighter, let somebody read it and just highlight it as you listen. You're going to retain more. Um, I'm also going to let you know quickly that you can go to that teens, teen, young teens, like 13 and above can go to audiobook sync and sign up for free books for the whole summer. It's like you have one week to download two titles and there's usually they're curated. So there's usually a relationship between the two titles. Um, all you have to do is go sign up, put your email in, they'll send you a little link and you download it. Well, Robin, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Joe. And for talking about your passion. Woohoo! <laughs> My pleasure. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.